0: You are listening to the Rama Blueprint Podcast, Episode 2, Tattoos That Only I Can See, Tatuajes Que Solamente Yo Puedo Ver. Tattoos are meant for life. They are an act of self-expression, artistic creativity, spiritual cultural traditions, and an addiction. At times, they resemble rebellion or the act of memorializing a loved one. For some, it is a membership to identity with a group, a symbol to display one's commitment and loyalty. Young people who identify with a particular street group use tattoos as a sign of identity and power.
1: From the Five Sisters Audio Garden in partnership with Cadessen SF, Instituto Familiar de la Raza, and homie SF, we welcome you to the Rama Blueprints podcast. The story of how a revolutionary youth service organization practiced self-determination and empowered their community, generation, and city. Joining us now, co-producer and host, Socorro Gamboa.
0: Engraved into the skin, tattoos can inhabit one's soul and sometimes be the reason for one's death. During the past few decades, the art of tattooing has seen a dramatic rise in popularity. 38% of adults between the ages of 18 to 29 have at least one tattoo. The tattoo industry has seen a 10% increase every year for more than a decade. Industry analysts believe that this trend will continue. However, on the flip side, tattoo removal services are expected to increase by 18% annually in that same time. In 1993, the first free tattoo removal program was established in San Francisco's Mission District by a partnership between the Real Alternatives Program, RAP, CARE, SNSF, and the San Francisco Department of Public Health. At that time, the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program services were based out of SF General Hospital. Eventually, after the closure of RAP, CARES NSF and the Department of Public Health housed the program at CARES NSF. The program has had a tremendous journey, overcoming institutional challenges and giving many the opportunity to regain their dignity, self-esteem, and the freedom of the negative stigmas associated with tattoos. 28 years later, the program is still in existence. In this episode, we will talk with four dedicated individuals who have invested their time and lives to ensure the continuation of the tattoo removal services and provide advocacy for thousands of youth and their families. Larissa Dugan, Quadra, worked at RAPS Por Vida program and is currently the executive director of CARES NSF. She provides us with a historical perspective of the Mission District of Immigrant Families and Young Adults in the 80s and 90s, when the Tattoo Removal Program was founded. I want to ask you what you feel is the, the historical influence that both Rap and Karesan had on activism, on community. How do you see that? Right now, as you asked me that question, I
2: think it was like a perfect marriage or sisterhood, if you will,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because mm-hmm. I think rap really addressed like the urban manifestations of our Latinx migrant experience in the US mm-hmm. and could respond to us and to young people in this really intense context of war on drugs, wars in Central America, urban blight, this is before dot coms. This is when like, cities were not really attractive right. places for people to live, where like, the majority of people in the cities were working class, blue collar people. And it's a perfect sisterhood because I think what Gadessen brought to the table was that migrant ethos. And this like, I know how to welcome you into this community. Uh, we're gonna walk together, we're gonna organize. And there was some American, if you will, US know-how but I've always thought of like like the immigrant organization. And I thought of RAP as like the place where the integration successful or not happens. RAP was ultimately dealing with failed integration. Like families and kids who did not have the proper supports as they came to the United States. There weren't the navigation supports. There weren't the system service connection or even the recognition that the migrant experience in itself carries its own story. Right. And so I feel like Rap and Carecen were like a good sisterhood. Mm-hmm. And that between the two, we created like a bridge between like the newcomer, family, and then the child who kind of crosses the bridge into the US that does that, I don't want to say integrates because I don't think a child who falls into a system is a successful integration story. Mm-hmm. But it's what happens when there is not the integration yeah. supports, right? Yeah. Like not the parents not having dignified wages so that they have to work three jobs. So the kids are home alone all the time. Yeah. Therefore they become, you know, they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Poor housing conditions because of poor wages, because people are working under the table. Also at that time in the late mid eighties to nineties, that was the first wave of unaccompanied young people yeah. from That's Central right. America. There was also a lot of young people who, like today, had no sponsors. They just came to the U.S. cold turkey, and yeah, probar suerte to see how it goes. Okay, so you don't speak English, your culture shocked. you arrive in this urban Latinx community, L.A., San Francisco, Mission, where you know wherever those commute, Chicago, New York, Jersey, D.C., all the urban centers that migrants follow migrants. And so you might not have anybody in that city, but that's where somebody from your community went. I think the context of unaccompanied minors at the time was different um, because the immigration system looked different too. So they could kind of fall under the radar. Mm-hmm. And I think that's bad, bad. Those kids should have not fall under the radar. They should have been welcomed. They should have been, uh, taken, been taken through the process so they could get papers. And then also falling under the radar led them to be exposed and vulnerable to exploitation, all forms of exploitation. CARESEN could do a really good job supporting the parents and the families, yeah. and RAP could do a really good job
0: supporting the young people. So, the tattoo removal program, which was one of the partnerships that CARESEN and RAP had, it's been here now. How long? maybe 94? 94 around there which was at the time around that there were at least 40 murders during that time young people that had passed away that had been killed through violence and a good majority of those youngsters were individuals that were unaccompanied minors or undocumented young people that were here and a veces we found ourselves at the funeral home with no domicilio when i think of the tattoo removal program and i think about careson's work how, to this day, it still upholds that and still continue to provide that service, which I think is an important and integral service for community.
2: It's interesting because I feel like the clinic itself has evolved. At the time, a lot of the focus was on visible tattoos because the landscape in our community was far different. And you would go from one block to another to another, and you were crossing turfs. Mm-hmm. In a 10-block radius, you cross four turfs. Now we still do, of course, visible tattoos, but one of the things I think we've learned or we have internalized or we've thought about is the fact that it's not just about the visible tattoos, it's like it's the relationship of the tattoo to the trauma. And so one of the things we also don't want to do is criminalize or further a narrative around tattoos. So we talk about trauma-related tattoos. You know, a lot of women who are sexually exploited, uh, the men who exploit them, brand them with tattoos. I didn't really know that. And so you would think that, oh, you know, it's just a visible tattoo and it's a stigma that keeps you from being able to gain gainful employment. But it's more than that. It's like every time you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a marking by somebody who victimized or exploited you. Even expanding our understanding of like how tattoos can be really detrimental to the psyche, depending on the context. Mm -hmm. There was also a debate at some point because, oh, well, we took your tattoos off, but then you went and got another tattoo. And the question is, well, what tattoo did you get? And we have had cases where young people took off one tattoo from the arm and they put it under their shirt kind of thing. And it's like, okay, well, that's all a learning process. But there's other people who get tattoos removed and then they go and get a different kind of tattoo that's not trauma-related. And now they, can, they feel good about that. You know, I think for us it's, Some people are happy with just having a tattoo done over their tattoo. So the experience of tattoo removal is different for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it's critical and it's a highly expensive service. So the the partnership with DPH is invaluable Mm -hmm. because they do provide the doctors and they provide the laser machine. And then our job is to do the the staffing of the clinic in terms of like the outreach, the follow up for the appointments. Mm -hmm. And then of course all the referrals for clients based on their unique needs.
0: Maria Vialta is a notary public and BIA representative at Cares NSF. She was also a participant in the tattoo removal program. She describes Cares's legal services and her own story of transformation. What was it that you to community activism? So as
3: a participant, I was part of the second chance tattoo removal program back in 1997, 96, 97. I was removing some tattoos because I was affiliated and I had a, a lot of visible tattoos. So I applied through, actually I think it was Horizons Unlimited that um, helped us in back in those days to connect to Cares and so we could get on the list. But I did do some community work with Gares in in like 96 through like 98 and was getting my tattoos removed because I had my face tattooed and my hands and...
0: And when you think about yourself as a participant, and you think of yourself as a worker, what have been some of the most, like, transformational moments that you've experienced when you knew, this is what I'm supposed to be doing?
3: I think I've had a few aha moments because everything has taught me a lesson. Every single place I've been has taught me a lesson. I think for me it was more of the moment when I came to work for Carecen, and I was probably a few years in doing legal work. Ricardo Calderon pulled me aside, which is one of our founders, Mm -hmm. and he said, I am so proud of you. It wasn't even in like an open setting or anything like that. He said, who would have known that this tattooed chola that looked crazy. And they said, you're going to teach her how to do legal work because she's smart. And he said, I would have never known that you were going to become who you are now. That to me changed my life because we're talking about somebody that has been doing this work since, since the beginning of Mm Caresen. And for him to see that, not only to see the potential, but he actually saw the transition of me going from like, this case manager that was learning how to case manage to becoming a legal assistant, to becoming a paralegal, senior paralegal, now a BIA accredited rep, and it's like he he saw that whole thing and he he saw it before it even happened.
0: And Garresen's role in around violence prevention work, how do you see it now, or how do you, how do you guys interact with all that kind of
3: well. Here, we're kind of like, we do more like a wraparound service. So like a lot of our youth that go through the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program, if, if they've had any contact with immigration or things like that, we have in-house attorneys that can help them navigate that. As well as we have the Family Wellness Program that, that helps the parents of these youth, as long as they're under the age of 18, you know, navigate certain things. And they receive services as well some kind of services to where they can talk to somebody and see how they can help them navigate whatever's going on, Uh, whether it's immigration, school things, and things like that, because we know that immigrant families, they don't know what they're doing when they come initially. It's it's very different, plus the language barrier, right?
0: The second chance to removal program, just in your perspective, how has it impacted community?
3: I mean, one, we make sure that folks that are trying to get jobs because you know tattoos are a real thing in in culture, in gang activity, in the gang life, in street life just in general. It plays a very big role. Like people wear like a patch of honor. But in the real world if you want to eat you have to work and not everybody wants to have a brown kid with tattoos on their face you know. So I think that that's the first impact. You know, allowing those folks to regain some kind of way to like present themselves physically, that's not going to be judgmental by anybody else. We could be harsh, even within our own community. We can be very, very harsh to each other because of the way we look.
0: Dr. Pierre-Marie Rose, a retired pediatrician specializing in high-risk adolescent medicine for the San Francisco Department of Public Health. He was one of the founders of the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program and RAPS Teen Clinic. He shares the stories behind the founding of the program and his unique perspective as a medical physician engaging with participants. At what point do you become involved with the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program?
1: Early on, I remember talking to Mitch about it. He was working with Phyllis Harding, who was the nursing supervisor at San Francisco General. And I guess they approached me about it. So I went out. And I made friends with Dr. Lisa Benton, who was a trauma surgeon at Highland Hospital, who had started their tattoo program along with a woman by the name of, oh, Alvarado was her last name. So they were very supportive. They let me come over there and see how they were doing it. Obviously, it wasn't going to fit for our model, but it was a great opportunity to, you know, actually pick up the laser, see the logistics, the dynamics so I got to give that uh, Oakland tattoo removal program over at Highland a lot of uh, credit in kind of supporting us early on in the planning stage.
0: Can you tell us how the program found its way to Caresen?
1: We were putting something together that was gonna be a Caresan. That's what I remember. The move to Caresan didn't happen until a couple of years maybe into my tenure. So I started at General. They had no appointments. It was like a cattle call. Anybody they could get, they, they lined them up in the hall. They put me in a room with no windows. It was like human barbecue back then. I was hitting ink, which makes fire shoot out of the skin, creating a hole that bleeds. And then that blood gets hit by the laser and the room fills with smoke. It is literally like cooking people. And we had no ventilation. It was like pulling teeth, but I convinced them that I needed to establish structure. Over time, I was able to convince them to use appointments and to make the room safer by giving us ventilation, fans, windows, things like that. Aftercare. They didn't know how to do aftercare because the treatment was so poor that they didn't need to. Mm. We were like opening up wounds on these patients. Then there was things like antibiotic ointment, dressings, the ability to call a doctor if you were concerned about an infection and get seen in a timely manner. I was willing to do whatever it took to keep these people safe. Nobody really wanted to embrace the fact that this was a medical process. Mm-hmm. They all wanted it to be a community process. And mm-hmm. you can have medical systems and medical processes in the community, but it doesn't make them any less medical. And there still have to be certain systems in place to ensure optimal safety, not perfect safety, but the best you can do given what you're trying to achieve.
0: Wow. That was tricky. Dr. Rose, those were challenges posed by the hospital setting. What were some of the challenges in working with the particular population?
1: You know how humbling it is when you inflict agony on people Mm. who are living and they say, thank you, I'll be back in six weeks to do this all over, and they Mm. come back, and they come back for years, for years. They, They come in and they asked me to hurt them. First of all, I'd be a wreck after every clinic. I'm dishing out pain. It took a lot of emotional discipline on their part and on my part, but I'd be a wreck when I got home because they'd be in. It might be long, it might be short, but then they'd be out. I'm doing that shit for four, six, six, six or four hours, and it, it just was it, was it was a burden. But I understood the potential impact that it would have, and it was one that I bore gladly. However, it wasn't you know, with the prep, putting on the cream and taking it off and talking about uh, the, you know, what had happened since the last visit. I always did a lot of counseling. And the whole reason we started this because these kids were engaging in activities that put them in the line of fire or in dangerous situations. Right. Like I said, we don't do harm prevention. We do harm reduction. So the the goal was never to erase their trauma or to pretend it no longer existed. The goal was to engage them in a process that would make them a little more resilient and a little more adept at managing the consequences of their trauma. And that never changed.
0: May Gonzalez is the current program coordinator of Karesin's tattoo removal program. She also has had her tattoos removed within the program and further explains the program and reflects on her own personal journey. May, how does someone qualify for the program?
4: Okay, so we do uh, prioritize youth, particularly youth that are disconnected from any systems, whether that be educational, home life, We try to get the ones that we see could use the connections more. We highly prioritize tattoos that are visible, that pose a threat or safety to a particular participant. Mm -hmm. So that would be neck, face, hands, ears, head. The most uh, visible ones are the ones we prioritize and the young people. We try to get the ones that are completely disconnected to try to reconnect them and reintegrate them with services or referring them to other agencies in the, in
0: the Mission District. Take me through the steps of what an intake process looks like for a client in the tattoo removal.
4: So uh, the process, we usually get referrals. Okay. So we'll get referral sources from local SFUSD, existing participants, families of participants that have had tattoo removal so the first uh, contact would be to call and express interest in it once you express interest then we set an appointment to fill out an application and do the intake process Mm -hmm. i would say the application is one of the hardest that i've seen people fill out (laughs) because it's questions about ourselves right and why we want to remove it and why would we do this and would you be able to commit to 25 hours of community service
0: Oh, so there's a case ma- there's still a community service piece yes to there's that. still a
4: piece to that yeah right. we would fill out the paperwork so I would say that the hardest thing would be them talking about having to write about themselves and why they want to remove these tattoos why is it a good time and what do they see their future in removing
0: these tattoos so young people have to kind of really dig deep and what what's the role of the case manager at that point what if somebody says you know I don't want to fill this out you know this doesn't make any sense to me I just want my tattoos removed how do you how do you guide somebody like that that's resistant to have to really deal with that issue
4: uh, it would it just has to just let them know like hey we can fill this out together and one of our biggest thing is we meet young people where they're at so hey if you don't want to be in an office setting why don't we go somewhere else or why, why don't I meet you somewhere and we can fill this out together. Because one thing that we will agree is you want tattoo removal. So in order to do this, there's a process. And much like in life and everything, right? And so how, do, how can we meet to make sure that these papers are filled out? Also, if it's a minor, we do need a parent consent. So a parent does need to come in and fill out consent forms. Our partner continues to be the Department of Public Health in San Francisco. If this person is a young person connected into case management, a case manager usually does the intake with them because of the
0: relationship that's already established. May, can you share with us a story of a participant that completed the program who was thriving? Myself,
4: when I first started at Caresen, I had gang tattoos on my legs and in my hands. And when I was doing my undergraduate in Los Angeles, I could never wear shorts. If I wore shorts, I had not much of a tan. That has helped me. I have to say in my Mm self-confidence, it's very painful to remove tattoos. Talk to me about it. It feels like hot oil going over your Mm -hmm. skin really fast. And so for me, when I would get tattoo removal, I, I would see it as a ceremony. As I did so much harm to my community, I deserve this pain, or you should take this pain. And I took it as a way to pray, to release, and to give back to my community of the harm that I did when I was young.
0: And let's talk about you, right? You had tattoos removed. You talk about your ex-gang affiliation and running amok and probably what you were doing in L.A. What was that transformation for you? I would say the manifestation was a spiritual
4: battle for myself. It was also a mindful thing. I myself, yes, I'm removing these tattoos. There was a point where you're almost done with tattoo removal, where I could still see it. But the medical providers are like May, it's gone. But because I know what I did to receive these tattoos, Mm -hmm. I still see them. Even if they may not be as dark, Mm -hmm. that memory is still there for me. The transformation I would have to say happened after my first tattoo removal because it is a long process. It took me about two years to remove. And I would say the biggest transformation is getting to wear shorts again,
0: <laughs>
4: getting to be on the bus, being able to be in the lower mission without a problem. And so those are like the, the perks to to this transformation. But I would say it took well over two years a process for myself because there was a lot of self-sabotaging. Do you deserve this? You're, you're here at a job, and you're, you're getting this removed from your job. There's other people that, I have friends that didn't make it, and they didn't get to have this opportunity. So this almost seemed like a survival guilt that I was experiencing, where I left to Los Angeles, came back, still saw my friends in the same place and tattoos, and so it made me feel like, why me? Why did I do this and why they couldn't do it? And so it was a lot of spiritual prayer and asking for forgiveness. Because one thing I've learned in life, the hardest thing to do is forgive yourself. That was the biggest part of the journey for myself, is to say that you're young. It's not okay what you did.
0: But I guess it's not about what you did, but what you're doing now. This program has created a cherished legacy over generations, a sisterhood, a brotherhood, una hermandad. What wisdom do you pass down to current participants? It's
4: interesting because when we work with young folks and you get upset with them, I realize it's a reflection of who I am and who I was. So I'm able to connect with young people by letting them know that, yes, you can remove your tattoo but it's one of the most dangerous times of your life. You're in this process of change. Homies might not like that you're removing tattoos. People might not like it, but at the end of the day, it's what you need and what you want. Mm -hmm. And if you're not ready to do that, I can't guarantee you the program will be here when you're ready, Mm -hmm. but I can guarantee you that one of us will be here to either refer you out or connect you to the services that you need whenever Mm -hmm. you're ready. So I, I usually tell them, I was young one time myself, and I understand that the process is really difficult. I was 35 when I removed mine, so I'm not gonna be here and be uh, your parent and tell you this is what you need to do. Right. But I can tell you, let's do some pros and cons. An example, you're from El Salvador. We get these tattoos, are we gonna be able to go home? Are we gonna be able to travel? Are we gonna be able to see our relatives? So what I try to do is, I'm a visual learner, is write it out. Okay, let's write the good stuff, right? You think you're going to look cool and you're going to like it, but let's talk about the cons, your future. If you're going to have a family, are you going to be able to travel home safely? Mm -hmm. Will you be able to travel at all? So just kind of putting things into perspective and not telling them what to do, Mm -hmm. but just creating that different perspective, for mm-hmm. they can see something different other than what they've been hearing. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure they've had everybody tell them, take it off. That's so why I'm going to be the last person to tell you
0: that. The Five Sisters Audio Garden would like to acknowledge the following. Gareset SF staff and their executive director, Larissa Dubin-Cuadra, whose humble offices have become home and provide hope to many individuals whose lives have been saved or transformed, we also want to thank Comi SF Instituto Familiar de la Raza, United Players, the founding staff members of the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program, Lourdes Terrador, and Mitchell Salazar. This episode was produced and edited by Darren J. DeLeon and Socorro Rambova. If you like our show. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with two people. Spread the word, all power to the people.